I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Club. You know, it is the book club where we might not be nice all the time and we might be rude. But what will we be? Funny. Honest. Honest. <laughs> and hopefully funny. Funny, as long as the truth is funny to you guys. Yeah, first and foremost, we are just servants to that blind lady justice. (laughs) (laughs) We say this up top just to let you guys know that if you're here for the coddling of the richest, most famous people in the world, we're not your gals. No, and if you just want a quick synopsis, unbiased, then I guess go straight to the source. They will give you their deeply biased opinion that you guys then want unbiasedly reported upon. We are reading published works that you can find in their original format and everywhere we, books are sold. And we did pay for these books, so I do believe we bought the right to be in their business. They put it out there. We have thoughts. We have feelings. We're not mean for the sake of being mean. We're mean for the sake of growth, of growth discussion, holding everyone but ourselves accountable. I love that. And you know what? If you want to leave a mean review, advise instead to just not and maybe just stop listening and just find something that works for you because it takes all types and it's rude to actually yuck somebody's yum. So if you're going to come yuck us, like yuck yourself, look in the mirror and think like, what am I really yucking? Is it myself? And if you are here because you love gossip and you love sauce and you love to shoot the shit with us, hop up aboard this horse. We are galloping into this week's episode. (laughs) Oh my God. And Ashley, what people have come to us and actually told us via an amazing review that they love this podcast. This week, let's dive into our glorious, gorgeous, objectively attractive five-star reviewers, Samantha Alder. Thank you. B Grizz. Thank you. Angel. Div fan. We're fans of you. <laughs> Popsicles are gross. If you say so, I'm on board. Marley G. Tay, 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 Angel. Skimboard 64. Oh, I'd love to go to the beach. And SW Barry, I love you guys. If you want to leave us a five-star review, we have set a goal for ourselves to hit 200 five-star reviews. And, and we are close. We are 14 five-star reviews away. And when we get there, what are we going to do? We're going to drop merch. Oh, baby. Ah. If you want to see some merch, we don't know how we're going to do it. We don't know what it's going to look like. If you have ideas. I do think it's going to be worm-based. So send us a DM if you would or absolutely would not wear a hat with a worm on it. I think that's funny. If you have thoughts, slip and slide into our DMs because we are very stoked. Or even a hat that just said the word worms in capital, no explanation. Yes. (laughs) That would be funny to me. Ashley, how was your week? Oh, my week, my week was good. If I was writing a memoir, I would probably call this week hit reset, put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. Today kicked off my first day as a full-time freelancer. And while I don't have the amount of gigs that it would require to call it (laughs) full-time, I am part-time freelancing and boy, am I loving it. I love the freedom, the air. I feel like the movie Limitless. I took a pill that is about to unleash my full potential. I'm Matthew McConaughey. 
I've always said that about you. <laughs> I've literally been like, if I were to compare Ashley to any other living being, it would be Matthew McConaughey. And if I could compare Ashley to any other being that's ever been alive, it would still be Matthew McConaughey. And I'm like, they have the same energy. They have the same look. And I think they have the same drawl. They have the same slow way of speaking. We are both cowboys rode into the entertainment industry, both accepted with open arms. We are both close personal friends with Kate Hudson. You're looking to me to deny it? But I only believe it more. Rippling abs and wavy blonde hair. That's us, me and Matt. The hottest model <laughs> wife. Yes. An idea that maybe you should one day be governor of Texas. Dude, you know, I've always said I should be governor of Texas. I've always said if there's any state that needs you as a leader and would want you as a leader and deserves you as a leader, it's Texas. Uh, speaking of the horse that we're all on journeying into this episode, Texas is where we could really tie that baby up, hop off and say, let's become the mayor. Did we say governor? Governor. <laughs> you can't be the mayor of Texas. Speaking I of, actually. I'm so confused about what mayors and governors do. <laughs> nothing. It's like, I do think a horse could be a mayor. Do they I do know th- each other? <laughs> it's kind of like being the queen. There's no real political power there. It's just sort of a for show thing. You like cut big ribbons and you give out the key. And you know what else about Texas though? What about it? We're trying to do shows there this summer. Yes. So if you live in Austin, Houston, or Dallas area, please let us know. We're coming at you. Claire? Yeah. How was your week? So you guys know how I've been like sick in the head with furniture shopping. Yes. And you guys know about the bench. You guys know about the chairs that I had shipped from Texas. You guys know about the couch. And I'm sure we've talked about the rug. Have we talked about the rug? Uh, I believe we talked about the rug on a Patreon episode that I might have not even published because it was too depressing. (laughs) For those of me... For those of me who know me, (laughs) that's like more accurate than anything else. For those of me who are I, you guys know that I had a rug. I bought a rug. It was pretty expensive. The minute I hit purchase, I regretted it. I went into Mac's office and I was like sweating and I was like, I think this was a mistake. And it was a sample sale, so I couldn't return it. And then it came and I cried for hours. I had a full breakdown because I hated this rug so much. I would say it left like a lengthy ripple effect in both of our lives. It was like, it took me down for a week. I didn't know what to do. And I was like, should I sell it? I like sent a like a pleading cry to the rug company being like, please let me exchange it for store credit. It's ruining my life. Thinking that there were people who love rugs and they didn't want a rug to ruin my life, but it turned out they did not care. They're not in it for the love of the rug. They're in it for the money, I guess. Yeah. And I do believe you're talking to like a customer service person who truly does not give two fucks how you feel. It seems like it's just a couple who makes rugs. Do you think I was deceived? Yeah. I really was like, they're going to want me to have a rug that I love. And it turned out they like did not ever even answer my email. And I was just stuck with it. And then I decided, you know what? I'll just get another one because it's not worth hating so much. And then I bought another rug. And I showed it to a friend and she said something mean to me. I overreacted upset because I was on my period. But then she like refused to ever apologize and then I was like, can you just say sorry because you hurt my feelings? And she literally stopped talking to me over it. So then I got a second rung that I did literally lose friends and family over. That's what I'm saying. The ripple effect. <laughs> the ripple effect. And then this week, after all of that, after literally losing a friendship over that rug, I've actually decided now to change my rug again. And so What I, the fuck are you talking about? I just was trying to like mood board what I wanted. And I suddenly realized that I was going in a boho direction because I think I was raised boho. I'm actually quite geometric abstraction type person. I realized like what I am was... Was not being explained by that rug and I saw a different rug and I was like this is I think it's the rug I've always wanted and I sent the Nordic Knots uh, customer service people who do actually respond one of the most unhinged emails of my life literally explaining the entire rug situation from top to bottom this first sentence was like I understand I should go to therapy but I'm here please help me <laughs> 
I included okay. the fr- I included the original rug. I included my boyfriend's response. I included the ideas that have come up. I've included the tears. I included the lost friends. I included many mood boards, vision boards, pictures of my interior. I was just like, can you help? And they literally just were like, yeah, we think this would be a better rug. You're right. But then the closer was, do you know about Jesse Andrews? No, I really feel like I'm losing my fucking mind right now. I did not know any of this. Much like Matthew McConaughey and the Lincoln lawyer. I'm about to sue your ass for the distress that this is causing me. I can't believe that you changed the rug again. I I wasn't even going to tell Mac. I almost didn't even tell him because I was just like, he doesn't even need to know. Look, this is my problem to bear. It is a mental illness at this point. And I'm like... It's one thing to live like this. It's another thing to affect my friends and family. It's okay for me changing rugs until the end of time. I just can't put this burden on others. That's true. Can I tell you guys, to the Patreon subscribers who did not hear the rug saga, saga, sacco, <laughs> it is because it was like an, a deeply unhinged episode that I like just didn't feel right putting out there. But cumulatively, I personally have heard... I would say, I don't know, how many hours does that guy say you have to wait to become an expert? 10,000. I am 800,000 hours. Being an expert in the Claire Parker trauma rug. I have a PhD in rug trauma. (laughs) And so I have, once again, switched rugs. But I do think this might be the last time. And honestly... Much like Matthew McConaughey in Fool's Gold, (laughs) you are digging for Fool's Gold. (laughs) Wow. I am... Excited to find out how and if this story ends. <laughs> <laughs> when I finally get a rug I like in there, we will move out the next month. <laughs> should we get into this week's episode? I really think we should. I want to disclaim up top that I know that we are often really hard on our memoirists as we disclaimed in the other disclaimer that we do up top, further up top. This second disclaimer is that I don't know how much of my opinion of this book is clouded by the fact that I am just like absurdly attracted to Travis Barker. Have we said that we're doing Travis Barker yet? I mean, it's in the title of the episode. Okay, they're on to us. (laughs) Introducing this week's episode, Travis Barker. I love him. I have to say, and this is like, I don't know that anybody, including myself, saw this coming. I mean, this is more unlikely than me finding the rug of my dreams. (laughs) But I read this book And not only did I like the book, but I loved the man. Okay, so here's the thing. So I've always had a crush on Travis Barker. There's like two kinds of guys that I'm attracted to. They are like head-to-toe tattooed motorcycle freaks and military psychos. Yes. So he really like fits one version of my dream man to an absolute T. So I've always just thought he was hot. And reading this book, I was like, I like feel something. (laughs) I like know him and I love him. So growing up, were you into Travis Barker? I was like a pop punk Looney Tune. I loved Blink-182. I was very into Travis Barker. I thought he was so cute growing up, but Blink-182 was one of my favorite bands growing up. I like thought they were so great. I like tried to see them in concert. I never did, Hmm. but I was a big fan. What about you? Okay, well, I was obviously knew who Blink-182 was. I know all of their songs. Like, I liked them a lot growing up, but I wasn't ever obsessed with them. But I do remember my best friend growing up, Casey, was obsessed with Travis Barker. And I always thought that was like a unique thing to her because I was like, even though I don't know much about this band, I do know he's the drummer and it's rare for the drummer to be like a front man of the band. And yeah. I did always have this vague idea and like understanding that he had transcended the idea of a front man and he just was the sex symbol of that band for some reason. And it was funny to be like, I actually don't know the other two men's names. And then it was funny to read this book and then find out like he was famous for not even speaking on stage, that the other men were not just front men, but they were like... The entire band. They were trying so hard. We'll get into it, but he was just 
kind of the hired help for the first length of time he was in that band. He was truly just a tour drummer for a while. Mm-hmm. He just transcended everything. And so I always knew who he was. He was always not my type. I like a clean man. You love a clean man. I thought his face was ugly. So I always was like, kind of rolled my eyes at my friend who was in love with him for being like, contrarian by liking the ugly guy and being so obsessed with him. And now I look back and it wasn't even particularly contrarian. I think a good third of teenage women had a crush on him. Like he was the heartthrob of one of the biggest bands in America. Um, I think he was the heartthrob of girls who thought they were different, which is most girls. Most girls aren't like other girls. And then of course he has Meet the Barkers, which I was always vaguely aware of. So he then also was in reality TV star. So even if you were a loser goody two shoes, you probably watched MTV. I'm going to watch some episodes of that before we do part two next week because oh, I'm very fun. curious. But I have to say, I read his book and I am... Smitten. Deeply respect him. I deeply like him. And I, I read this book and I went, I hope boys who looked up to him read this book and get something out of it. Like this is a book I'm happy to have out there. Yes. And this is a man that I'm happy to have as a role model. <laughs> I mean, while I do think that there are some things that I obviously would have been probably included or excluded had it come out a few years later, I do think overall the message of this book is extremely positive. And even though we are often anti-writing a book in the middle of your life, yes, I do think that... Enough happened enough to him. Enough <laughs> happened to him, and he had enough of a character development arc. And I do think yeah. he had enough retrospection on the earlier years and what has happened, and he has grown substantially as a person. So Ashley, you have now the beloved Ashley binary of, is your memoir what I've done or who I am? So I was going to say this memoir is actually like a very interesting and impressive combination of listing an extreme list of accomplishments. I mean, the things that this guy has done, there's obviously some stuff that he's listing just kind of to be like, look at this cool shit that I fucking did. But it is not only that because it's also who I am. He's telling you these very important crossroads moments and how he grew from them, the things he learned from like extreme tragedy in his life. I mean, he has been like tried and tested at several different points. And like, there are certain things that I'm like, oh, he's definitely a shithead during these parts. But the way that he weaves in these lessons that he learned, including mantras and mottos and things like that is so impressive to me. And the other thing is that sometimes we say like, who the fuck is this book for? Is it for him? Is it for his fans? Is it for up and coming drummers or people who look up to it's for everyone. This book is for people who are looking to learn something about the power of music. People who are obsessed with drums and just want to learn some technical shit. It's for people who love celebrity and want some juicy stories. It's for people who love a character arc. This book, it has it all. Yeah. I will say it reminded me of Mariah Carey and yeah, a lot of times we give people shit and we're like, who cares about you? And of course, we're the ones reading the book. And then as people have pointed out, then we talk about our own lives and people are like, who cares about you? And I'm like, fair enough. But I do think what comes across and one of the first things that stuck out to me is Travis Barker is a deeply respected and talented drummer. And there are entire pages where I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about because he's talking about the technicalities of how tuning drums, how to get better, the metronome, the hi-hats, the cymbals, the tightness. The amount that he rehearsed. The amount that he rehearsed. Bananas. How he rehearsed. And mm-hmm. like the, why this drummer was was great what he took from jazz what he took from country what he took from this performer what he thinks it's so technical that I really think if you were a drummer of any level you would appreciate and respect his artistry and it reminded me of Mariah Carey in that way in that I mean I'm sorry to shit on Holly Madison but she's just fresh on my brain because we just we did a Patreon episode about the call her dad episode so if you're interested in 
our further thoughts on Holly Madison, subscribe to the Patreon. And even though that is an interesting story because she is a person who is amongst interesting people and in an interesting circumstance, as far as women who marry rich go, she wasn't even the best who ever did it. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Like, I want the Wendy Dang memoir. Wendy Dang is the Mariah Carey of marrying ups, but Travis Barker is the Wendy Dang of playing the drums. Yes. <laughs> so in that way, I was really happy to he- see all of like the technicality and the practice and the respect and the reverence that went out to the other artists. He is very Questlovian about the way that he really like respects his influences mm-hmm. and how he's always trying to push himself as an artist and I feel like that comes across and that just makes you like him so let's take it back let's start with who is Travis Barker where did he come from why is he the man he is all right so Travis's childhood he grew up in Fontana California Inland Empire baby and he was born in the late 70s he had two older sisters a mom and a dad a real working class traditional family he talks a lot about how his dad was like he would go to the factory work all day and then he'd come home and work on the house he built them a house with his own bare hands mm-hmm. and he had an incredible work ethic him and his dad both love fixing up old cars that's like a real bonding thing for them so he came from a family and I mean they didn't have a lot but they gave what they could and his mother sounds so sweet her name is Cookie that's not her Ugh. real name but that's her nickname well, he was four years old they got him into drum lessons. Yeah, even before he was four, his like one absolute North Star passion was drumming from the time he was like a literal baby. He talks about seeing Animal from the Muppets and being like, that's who I have to be. So they got him in drum lessons. They got him a drum kit right away. And then the drum kit kept upgrading. But his parents really did like nurture his passion, which I feel like is rare mm-hmm. for the type of family he describes. His dad could drive but his mom couldn't but his mom wanted to help him with his drumming so both parents took him to every drum lesson and his mom would record it Mm -hmm. and then also learn alongside him so that when he went home and would practice throughout the week she could help teach too I mean they must have known or something I think his mom always said you're gonna be a drummer you're gonna be a drummer she knew he had something special I think she knew that he could do it and and she believed in him and she pushed him and I'm so sad that she never got to see it I know I have to say he was a delinquent as a little kid he was like a high energy Psychopath. I mean, he burnt down a church. He was burning down a lot of things. He was just yeah. burning down whatever was close. And one day he happened to be close to a church. I mean, he would like steal his dad's car and just like go out joyriding when no one was around. He caused a multi-car pileup at one point. He didn't have a rough childhood necessarily, but he definitely was always near drive-by shootings. He was always I at rough he- houses. He was always sneaking out early to the kid whose older brother had drugs. I would say that he himself didn't necessarily have a rough and gang-affiliated childhood, but by accident. Like, he very much could have ended up in that world easily, and he knows a lot of people who did. And Yeah, he talks about, like, losing friends to gun violence all the time. And him and his friends were, like, doing drugs and drinking and experimenting with shit, but it doesn't seem like it was in a malicious way. It seems like it was just in a this-is-what-you-do kind of way. And he was very much a skater kid, Mm -hmm. but his parents were, like, weirdly supportive, and I don't disagree. Like, I do think he was passionate. He wasn't necessarily what you would say was like an all-star student. He wasn't like the kid that you look at and go, oh, he's going places. But he was always somebody who was literally going places. Like he wasn't just sitting around, farting around. He had a lot of things he wanted to do Mm -hmm. and he pursued those passions furiously. One of the weird stories, or not weird stories, but kind of, I think, telling stories is that I guess there was some parking lot that a bunch of skaters would break into because there was like a dip in it. Mm -hmm. And so you could skate, but it was technically trespassing. And he was like, my dad every once in a while would load up the car with me and my skater friends when they were like in middle school and drive them there so that they could trespass. And often the cops would come and like arrest everybody who couldn't get away. And he was like, yeah, my dad wasn't like cutting chains for us so that we could break in. But he was like, hey, my son wants to skate. Good for him. Go ahead, skate kid. I'll help you out. 
Yeah, I mean, I thought that was really cute. And his dad would drive him like an hour outside of town to go to the skate park. I mean, they were very supportive of his interests and his passions. And it seems like when his mom was there, she was very like, you come home, you do your chores, you do your homework. They always making sure he was doing lessons. They always had him in activities. And I will say his love of drums was pure as hell. He was always practicing. They got him drum sets. And it was like the one thing that kept him steady in school. I do not think he was a good student. I think he was kind of an outcast loner fuck up. But he was in band. Yeah, he was in drumline. He loved practicing for drumline. It's not particularly a cool thing to do, but he just like loved the drums. So that's one thing that I wanted to talk about is the fact that he did have this passion for him, that he does not care about the coolness of it. I mean, he's a drums purist. He like truly is a drummer the way we talk about artists. Like he grew up listening to every kind of music that's and he would play say. along to every record. He studied jazz. He studied Latin music. He studied drumline. He talks about practicing with a metronome like a maniac just that's for what hours I meant. a day. He is, he is like a music purist but he's not a music snob for someone who got their start in like ska punk DIY scenes and someone who has such a passion for that type of music it is I feel like very rare that they're also open and willing to admit to everyone they speak to that jazz is a major influence he talks about getting clowned on for participating in like a country tribute and not giving a fuck because it was so important to him that he was like yeah no this is just what I like and then you see that payoff later in his career when he is this multi-genre absolute powerhouse he's deeply prolific I mean I think like first and foremost he's a drummer he's Mm -hmm. not a punk guy he's not a hip-hop guy he's not a skater boy he's a drummer and he appreciates any great drummer but I just feel like it's very rare for someone I mean regardless of what genre they come up in but someone young to not try everything they can to fit in and he didn't care about fitting in he cared about playing the drums so the tragedy strikes when he's 13 years old Mm -hmm. his mom dies first he finds out that his dad is cheating on his mom I mean it just is a weird coincidental situation their family starts breaking apart and then she becomes very sick and dies the summer before freshman year of high school Yeah, and he does not handle it well, which, like, who could? But he was so close with his mom. But one of the last things she ever said to him was, keep drumming, you're a drummer. She really believed Mm -hmm. into him in the end. And, I mean, God bless. I hope she is watching down, seeing how successful he is. I'm going to cry. It was heartbreaking. And he does talk about, like, really acting out afterwards. I mean, he's super promiscuous, super dangerous. You know, he's he's taking his dad's car for a joyride. I can't imagine his grades were great. He was told by his guidance counselor, at least go to community college so you have a backup plan. And he was very much like, I'm not going to have a backup plan. I don't need anything but my drums. I need my drums and to eat. And he also talks a little bit later about how after the death of his mom, he was like very directionless and felt very in the moment. And it wasn't until other things sort of started to come together in his life that he realized that he did care about living another day. He just felt in that moment that like nothing was promised in the future and you might as well just do whatever because nothing matters. Through it all, he's stuck with his drums. He's running around like a delinquent. At the same time, he is constantly making bands. Like, you know what I mean? He's like stealing yes. his dad's credit card to put an ad in the local paper <laughs> looking for a band. He's always practicing. Anyone who will let him drum, he will drum for. Anyone. I mean, he will join literally any band. He will practice with any band. He will show up anywhere that you say you are going to play drums Or here. even if you're playing drums, he'll come watch. He talks about driving just to be a techie at some venue where he wasn't allowed in because the age was 21. So we have set everything up and then listened from outside. <laughs> who did he see there? But an unsigned Gwen Stefani with no doubt. He met her before anybody else. He's always playing drums. And I guess he's phenomenal. And so he starts getting noticed. It seems like even from the beginning, it's always evident that he is something special. I really like the way that this book does these little interjections from the people in his life. I think that they provide like a really good perspective and like a 360 view. And like, obviously, it's still his book. So they're not going to include anything that is crazy. Like everything serves the story. But the way that people are like, no... 
as soon as this band invited Travis in, all of a sudden it was something different. He talks about like stepping in and people watching and coming just to watch him play. And so he was always getting passed from band to band to band and he was always being asked to step in. And then he was the person who every time he stepped in, he made the band better and they were like, actually, could you do this forever? Because we didn't think we yeah. were really a band until we met you. Yeah, like every time he would kind of like just be there and willing to play with whoever and then he would be filling in for someone and they'd be like, actually, you must stay long term. And so- he never said no to anything. Thing. And I really like respected this and I really kind of like resonated with so me. So he joins this band called Feeble, which is a band based in Laguna Beach. He's so 18, Cal 19. Baby. He's 17. He had just graduated high school. Yes. So his dad is basically like, you have to get a motherfucking job. And he is playing with Feeble. Feeble is like, well, we want you to play with us. So move out of the Inland Empire. Just come crash on our couch. We'll find you a job in Laguna Beach. And you'll play with us. And so and, he joins people. And sure enough, he like sleeps on their couch. Unless there's another guest, then he sleeps on the floor. He works as a trash collector during the day. And he yes. like loved that job. <laughs> He's like, you have to wear a cool Dickies outfit, which is what I wore anyway. And, and then he was still fucking girls. So two things are ev- evident at this point in time before he's famous, which is everybody who sees him play recognizes his gifts mm-hmm. and everybody cannot believe the amount of female attention he gets. The way that people are begging to suck his dick at all times. Even before he was in Feeble, he was just like working at like a, a CD store and older women would come in and like have affairs with him. When he was working as a trash collector, he got to drive the trash truck and he would park it in the parking lot of like a law office and like the ladies would come out and just have sex with him in the truck. Women were banging on the doors for the opportunity to have sex with him on his sleeping bag on the floor. They were talking about how people would just show up all the time because it was like before cell phones and they knew where he was staying. So women would just show up at this apartment and be like, is Travis here? Can I fuck him right now? <laughs> but also everyone always says he's a really good roommate. He is somebody who crashed on a lot of couches in his early days. And everybody's like, he would wake up at 5 a.m., roll up his little sleeping bag, tidy up his little spot, and go collect trash. <laughs> I also don't think that you're ever getting surprised by what he's offering. I don't think that any of these girls were showing up trying to be his girlfriend. I think they all literally just wanted to bang him and he was very there for it. I would love to talk about his relationship with women, notwithstanding his wives. This is what he's doing when he's sleeping on the floor. You guys can only imagine how big it got when he was in Blink-182. I mean, truly when we say women were banging down the door trying to have sex with him, he would bring home multiple girls at night and they would all just go into separate rooms and wait for their turn. He talks about girls coming over and stripping for the whole party just to get his attention. But he's never degrading in the way that I felt Steve-O was or even yes. Rob Lowe. Women. He doesn't get off on the degrading of them in the way that like Steve-O would be like, and then I, this one girl, I met her, she was five foot six, her social security number was this, and I pissed all over her tits, and then I, I threw her out of the crowd, and I said, pissed on her tits too, and the whole crowd cheered, and I did it. Fuck that slut. Yes. <laughs> like Steve-O was very like that, and Rob Lowe was much more like, I remember seeing a woman one time. She had big, large bosoms. She had a hot, tight little derriere. And her name was Angela Merkel. And I later found out she was the German chancellor. And you're just like, wow, you literally don't see anything but sex. And I struggle to say this because, you know, I love to support the women. But there is this weird thing where I don't find that Travis gets off on the degrading of women. I do believe he had a sex addiction. I do believe he is just like a big old sex addict. And I do believe that these women were absolutely throwing themselves at him. With Steve-O, he was obsessed with how young they were. He was always finding like the only high school girl in the group. He loved putting them down. I do feel like Travis, it just was a fact of Travis's life that he was having sex every day. Well, we'll get to this later. I think the only things are that there was like a little bit of a coldness and like frankness to him that I think that with these girls that he was just like hooking up 
up with who were showing up for sex and getting that. That's what they wanted. That's what they were getting. He was never chasing them. He was never charming them. He was never saying like, come live with me. I love Mm -hmm. you. I want to be with you. And then he fucks them and then he was throwing them out on the street. But I think the way that he like talks about the ending of major relationships in his life is like a little bit cold and difficult. It is one of those things where I'm like, I do think they wanted it. Like they were literally crawling through the windows and I mean, begging for the chance. And it, it was one of those things where it's like for the first time in my life, I want to sit these girls down and be like, ladies, you do need to respect yourselves. And I do, I do think the only people who didn't get exactly what they were going for were the ones he ended up in like serious relationships or married to. Okay, so he's in Feeble. He's in this band. He's sleeping on the floor. He moves to a different apartment because there was no more room on that floor. He's living with the manager of Feeble and he gets this opportunity to drum for a ska punk band with quite a bit of success. And they're getting booked. They were getting booked. They were touring. But the problem was that there's like eight people in this band. So if you take any amount of money, you divide it by eight plus a manager, plus a van, plus a roadie. I mean, he wasn't making money, but he was making money. Like he he was was making music. He was making music and he was getting paid to make music. It wasn't like a livable wage, but he was being handed money for shows. The way he lives is not expensive. He joins this band called the Aquabats. And they are this like goofy ska punk band that wears scuba suits on stage. Costumes, this is yeah. truly how you know how much he just like truly cares about the music. The fact that they like handed him a scuba suit and they were like, this is what you wear on stage. And he was like, I guess if I'm drumming and getting paid to drum, I'll wear it. I'll wear this. And mm-hmm. they ended actually ended up being Yo, Yo Gabba, Gabba, Gabba. <laughs> So he ends up having to quit Feeble, which he does respectfully because he simply doesn't have the time anymore and Aquabats is paying him and Feeble is not. Yeah, and so then he goes on tour with Aquabats and he has a great time. I mean, they're a Mormon band, so I think it was a really good influence on him because they were pretty respectful. Mm -hmm. They don't drink, they don't smoke. He isn't a big drinker. I don't think ever in his life he's been a big drinker. He obviously smokes a lot of cigarettes. I think he was a big drinker when he was around big drinkers, but it was like never, it was never like like him instigating it. Both Aquabats and Blake-182 weren't big drinkers, it sounds. And so he tours with them. I think he spends a good amount of time with them, and he gets really close with them, and they're all very close. But, of course, they end up being on a tour with this little band I like to call Blink-182. So they're doing some shows with Blink-182, and one night Blink-182's drummer has to fly back home for some... Because his girlfriend's, like, mad at him. They're like, Travis, can you play with us tonight, too? He does. Blink-182 went from being these, like, fun pop-punk guys who everyone kind of likes to being, like, a band. So then eventually he leaves the Aquabats to go to Blink-182 because it is, like, an undeniable chemistry. And this is another thing I respect is that he says the Aquabats clearly wanted TV as their end goal. Like, Yo Gabba Gabba was, like, what they wanted. Yeah, they were looking into, like, a reality show. Yeah, and I also do think that Blink-182 was, like, a little bit more in line with what Travis wanted. And they, I mean, all these asides, like, all the other people in his life are saying there was just, like, truly an undeniable chemistry when Travis hopped in with Blink-182. Blink-182 was Mark and Tom. So Mark Hoppus... And Tom DeLong. Yes. And they were best friends for like a decade. They had started this band with this third guy. This third guy was obviously wishy-washy and left. But everyone talks about how they were like kind of pop punk posers. They were just like hacks. And then Travis was the musician. And I think even amongst Blingo and AT, that was sort of the feeling that what Travis brought was an X factor of talent and skill and knowledge that elevated all of their music. They had a couple of high school hits. Mm -hmm. But he made them a fucking band. They spent that first year just like 
writing and putting out that first Blink-182 album. What are the songs on that first one that go huge? And he talks about writing those songs with him and he would like lay a beat that would change the song. And then I guess Mark would go write a hook. Tom would come in and finish it off. And they were just, you know, in some house. They had four days to record an entire album. What's My Age Again? Adam's song, All the Small Things, the party song, Anthem. It's that album with that hot nurse holding a glove. And at this point, he isn't even an official member of the band. So I think they were paying him out per show or something because he didn't get any royalties. He didn't get any songwriting credits for those songs, even though he laid down the beats and the drums and they would start with the drums and then build a song around it. But he also doesn't really care, it seems. He was hired as like a touring drummer. They recorded that album in four days. So he was just kind of like there with them in the studio for a couple days playing. He was kind of a studio musician for them. Then he was really just like being paid as like a gig worker almost. And he didn't become an official member of the band until their second album when he wanted health insurance. And so he took his first check, $3,000. He had never seen so much money in his life. And he calls his dad and his dad's like, if you're smart, you'll save it. You'll never see that kind of money again. And he's like, I want to put it into myself. And so he takes $1,500 and saves it. And then he takes the other half and he begins his apparel company. Famous Stars and Straps. You guys know that I am obsessed with the point in time when a person gets famous but isn't rich yet. Yes. So he has this hilarious year of his life where, yeah, he's basically a gig worker for Blink-182. They have the number one song on TRL. All the small things. It's like the number one video. I think they win a moon man for it. Yeah. But on the side, he's starting like a t-shirt and stickers company where he is making it in his bedroom. He still is like living in somebody else's house. Now he can upgrade to an entire room in someone else's home. But in his free time, he's like hand pressing his own t-shirts. He's like tagging stuff. They're like, yeah, he's put- like stickering monuments in town. Yeah, like that's what he spends his nights doing is getting the word out about his company by putting stickers everywhere. Like just guerrilla PR. <laughs> And he's doing this, honestly, for quite some time. I love that he had other people's perspectives because I did feel it made the narrative like a fuller, more understandable. You did get other people's perspectives. But something I wanted to hear is how much money did he have at any given point? Because it was hard to square that he is like in one of the biggest bands in the world. And then he's going home at night and like making his own merch by hand. So this time in his life, I would say it's like his early 20s. Ultimately, he wants to always be playing more music. And so what's confusing is he's never part of a band 100%. He's always like, I played with Blink-182 and every day I was off, I would play with these guys and every day I was off that, I would play with my other buddy and if we wanted to start a side project, there's like so many projects going on. He'll fill in for anybody. If he was in town and he had no plans that night, he would be there for whoever. So he starts this clothing line with two buddies. He loved to like employ the people he met who he liked. He would meet someone who just like was a big guy and once he started needing security, it was just like Inland Empire dudes who he knew growing up who were big were his security guards. Like he wasn't working with a security agency. When he started his clothing company, he wasn't like, okay, who has experience running a clothing company that could like come in and help me with this? He was like, no, my two buddies that I grew up with, we're going to all learn this shit from scratch together. They're going to run this clothing company with me. Like he also it was- has this real work ethic and make it with my hands mentality. He wasn't a branding genius in the sense that he was like, all right, now I'm Travis Barker, the tattooed drummer. What can we do with this? He like literally physically with his hands built a shop to sell his t-shirts and then asked if Blink-182 could come do a promo and just play outside. He didn't get a single license. He didn't get a single permit. I mean, it was idiotic, but I I do respect that hustle of what do I want to make happen? I want people to buy my clothing. I'm going to put stickers all over town that I I printed one by one myself. Billabong maybe did some major purchase where they're like, we need a hundred thousand units. And so they sent him billabong tags and him and his friends were just up all night adding tags to the clothes. Like he does have this sense of 
this is how I want it. I'm going to make it my way. I'm going to employ all my friends. Anyone who wants to hang out with me has to be cool. He goes, I don't really have expensive taste. I never like to dress nice. And I wasn't interested in iced out watches and rings. Um, what I really wanted to do was buy a nice things for my new house because he had bought everything from Goodwill. So then when he got money, he's like, I wanted the raddest furniture money could buy from stores like B&B Italia and Minotti. A man after my own heart. He goes, the best piece was a white Italian leather couch. It was all straight lines and it was super modern. It cost $10,000. But you can't buy a couch like that for cheap. He says he still has it and that no one's allowed to sit on it. And I was like, my man. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have the exact same illness. So first him and Tom start a sidecar project and starts drama with Mark. But that seems to blow over. Yeah, that... I do feel like he had this different... I think Mark and Tom wanted to be punk stars. They wanted to have a band. They were the front men. And I found this very interesting because even though I always knew Travis, Mark and Tom were the funny dick joke makers. They would do jokes between every song. They were obviously the singers. They were the front guys. And the joke was that Travis never spoke. He didn't even have a mic. And like once a concert, they'd be like, hey, you guys want to hear Travis talk? And Travis just go, hi. And that was it. But it's just so funny then that his... Not just his talent, but his magnetism and his natural charisma and star power still made him like the most famous one. I could Claire, not remember those men's so names. Fucking hot. <laughs> He's not even my type, but I, if you had put a gun to my head and said, explain what Mark and Tom look like, I would have literally been like, Mark and Tom who? They look like they're from Weezer. I mean, they look like true dorks. They look like teachers. They look <laughs> like history's teachers at a public middle school. <laughs> So Tom and Travis start a little side project that kind of seems to blow over in between. I guess this was just off the success of the first album and it's called Boxcar Racer. And obviously Travis is just happy to play drums. He's just kind of like there. Like it's Mark and Tom's band and Travis is in it too and has a much bigger role in creating the second and third albums. But it is still Mark and Tom's band. So I think that that did create a little bit of tension. And I think that if we were reading Mark or Tom's book, this would have played a much bigger role. Yeah. And I do think that for Travis, it was always about making new, interesting music and he never wanted to be pigeonholed into one thing. And so I think it was really important to him. He talks about when they started the second album doing something completely different and he would be like, well, what about these beats? And they took beats from all different influences Mm -hmm. to build out new types of songs. And that was the Travis effect. I think if Mark and Tom had gone back in the studio without him, they couldn't kind of would have come out with Anonymous of the State 2.0. Travis then goes on to make a whole other band with like his old buddies are just like, hey man, do you have time to be a drummer for us too? And he's like, totally. And it's like this cute band with this guy from his past. And then the lead singer is this guy, Rob, who was their roadie forever. And then one time they found out that he had ambitions to sing and songwrite and they gave him a shot in the studio one day and they're like, all right, Rob, you can do it. But I really think that's like Travis's MO. He's always giving people opportunities. He's always finding some kid who was just hanging out and really loved the game and opportunity to be an engineer. He was always calling up people from his past. He even tried to start a new band at one point with a woman, a female singer that he remembered Mm -hmm. from back in the day, like small town. He just like kept thinking of people and wanting to work with them and making shit. So romantically at this time, he gets a wife. (laughs) Her name's Melissa. They're married for, I think, four months. Yeah. How long do you think they knew each other overall? Okay, so this is what I want to talk about. They have two very different memories of meeting. He's like, one day I was out and there was these three gorgeous platinum blondes and... I started talking to them and one of them was interesting and smart and I just loved talking to her and then I called her the next day and then I called her the next day and then we were inseparable pretty quickly. And that girl was Melissa and in the photos, Melissa does not seem platinum blonde. She almost looks like a brunette. I think she looks very brunette to me. Her memory, I had known Travis for years. 
we at first I didn't even like him, but then we became friends. And then one day it became romantic. And I was like, <laughs> did he forget about those years or is he mixing you up with somebody else? <laughs> it does seem like it's the age old story of she was forced to be a groupie. And then he was like mad that she was a groupie. He finds out when they, the day they get married and they sign their marriage license that he's 26 at the time. And he had always assumed she was 24, 25. And it turns out that she's 21. He says one of the biggest things besides feeling betrayed was he started like looking down on her because then he started realizing like, oh, you know what? She does not seem to have anything else going on. It does seem like she just like lives in my van and does whatever I do. I mean, she was very young and she hadn't established her own life in any way. She just married him and made that her life. I just don't think he was actually ready to settle down. I do think he cheated on her the whole time. He says that they didn't have sex for months, that they had a three month dry spell, but they had a four month marriage. I know. What does that mean? It sounds, they did have like a tumultuous breakup that lasted some time. She cleaned him out for half a mil. So I think he was pretty pissed about that. I mean, he was just getting more and more famous and like very publicly jumped back into the sack with a bunch of other ladies right away. He got his next wife, his next future wife pregnant before the divorce was final. It seems like they're on good terms now. I I do think the appeal of Travis Barker is that he has grown up. I do think he should not have been married at the height of his fame at 26. He is not somebody who, even if he was working at Costco, should have been married at 26. He was a sex addict. It is very telling that both of his ex-wives contributed asides to this book. I mean, he has a very cute little goodbye to her. He's like, well, it took us a while, but now we're really good friends. And he talks about being so proud of her that she's one of the top real estate agents in California. Yes. So I think it all worked out for her. At the end of the day, it was just like a deadhead that got too deep in it. She was divorced at like 22, 23 and still able to just like reinvent herself and start a whole new life. And now being the first wife of Travis Barker is probably a fucking sick party story. <laughs> so immediately he meets Shayna Mochler. Is it Shayna or Shanna? Because there's two ends. I noticed that I won't call her Shanna. I believe it's Shanna. I believe it too, but I don't know that I respect it. Okay. Shanna Mochler is a whore. <laughs> now we sound like misogynists. So Shanna Mochler was Miss USA, who then became a Playboy Playmate. She was famous for being Oscar De La Hoya's ex-fiance and baby mama. Mm-hmm. And when she met Travis Barker, they she were was both- at a bar talking to George Clooney. That's awesome. I will say it is funny that she name drop George Clooney in her ex-husband's book. I like that about her. So Shanna and Travis were both in a real party phase, which is interesting because she had a two-year-old at home. Who she didn't watch. <laughs> it doesn't seem like she really knows to this day. We looked at Shanna's Instagram and she is now the mother of three teenage children. You would not know it from her Instagram. And I know we've gotten shit in the past for shitting on women, for having, having higher expectations for moms than dads. But I do think it's very interesting that she was out. I mean, Travis talks about partying with her a lot. It does seem like it was exactly what you would have imagined. The stereotypical hot, sexy playmate who is a firecracker and the like the sex addict rock and roller. It was hot, hot sex and then absolute tearing each other to shreds and then hot, hot sex and then absolute tearing each other to shreds. And I, the thing is, I think he liked that a lot before it was destroying him and his family. And would you believe that having a lot of unprotected sex led to her getting pregnant? And so this changes everything. And I have to say part of his little redemption arc is that he loves being a dad and he looks like so such a good dad. Much. I mean, he is still heavily, heavily, heavily popping pills. We have not yet even hit his pill addiction. I forgot. Like, it's hard to say when it starts because it, it really was creeps definitely up. while he was with his first wife because she, in an aside, is like, I honestly had no idea. It seems like he was very good at hiding it, but he was 
pretty consistently. I mean, a lot of people talk about his like deeply aloof vibe and it seems like he was just zanned out like crazy. <laughs> I, I guess to take a quick pill popping addictions aside, I believe it started when he was with Blink-182 because the mm-hmm. driving force was planes. Yes. It seems like considering everything else, he was actually relatively sober. He was with those Mormons and he smoked cigarettes, but not so much around them just because like they rubbed off on him. Blink-182 also was on a big drinking group. It seems like they took their music, their performances very seriously. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing where it's like you have to be on your A game to act like fuck ups. But he, his whole life had a huge fear of flying. His it's- mom had a fear of flying. He had a fear of flying. When he started flying with Blink-182, he started slowly introducing Xanaxes into his life. And then... And then a- any other pill that anyone would give him and also Shanna was a big partier so with her he was drinking a lot more and at some point he got introduced to weed which he was very into he was taking a lot of oxy it seems he was taking a lot of xanax like he was really just taking any pill that anyone would hand him that or that he had heard of and tried and then really liked and then he would like go get it from acquaintances um so back to his relationship with Shanna it was it was all passion and sex. Now that I look at how quick the turnaround was, it was pretty quick. So right after she gets pregnant, Blink-182 breaks up for the first time. So here's one part of the story that's never really explained is the Tom DeLong side of... Tom DeLong kept pulling out of Blink-182. Yeah. Travis starts to go on and he keeps going with the transplants. He starts plus 44 with the other bandmate, Mark Hopper. Hoppus. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> he's almost irrelevant. Okay. But mostly he's consumed with this relationship with Shanna and she wants to do a reality show, Meet the Barkers. He had the first kid and did Meet the Barkers before the band broke up. The band broke up when she was pregnant he with the second so kid. Here's on. my theory. I have theories. I think he's a little oblivious to the way his bandmates felt at any given time. Like he talks about when he started the boxcar racers with Tom, that he, he just didn't even occur to him that Mark would feel left out. Then, you know, he is... The drummer who just got kind of added, it is Mark and Tom's band, and Travis did become kind of the breakout star. And I think for Tom, the actual front man, mm-hmm. that might have been really difficult. Like at this point, after Travis's divorce, and then he gets Shanna Mockler pregnant, I mean, Oscar de la Hoya's, like it, they were a tabloid fixture as a couple. Then they start a reality show. I mean, it is. I think probably hard to have this band that is your baby, your passion, and you are not the star of it. I think to be a front man and not be the front man is difficult. Which is funny because I didn't know much about Blink-182, but that was something even I was aware of. And I think I even thought it was a quest love situation where the drummer just for some reason also got to talk, like the drummer got the mic. Yes. But then to find out even that wasn't true, just his presence was overpowering their chatter. (laughs) Yes. I mean, yeah, people were showing up for Travis and I think that that is an ego blast. I think that if we were reading Tom's book, what he might say. Maybe that's what what Mark would say in Mark's book about Tom. Maybe Tom doesn't even know. I do also think it's interesting that they had all gotten married and I think Tom and Mark's relationships fared a bit better than Travis's. Yes. One of them married their high school sweetheart. Yes. Or not sweetheart, but like their high school crush. That's awesome. And so I do think there was kind of a like, well, we got what we wanted. We wanted hot wives. I do feel like maybe Mark and Tom just did it to be cool because they were kind of like 
average looking dorks. Yeah. And I also think overall, Travis was kind of messy, partying way more than they were. He was super addicted to pills. Like Mm -hmm. he talks about it like it was something that only affected him and that he was kind of under the rug with everybody else. But it was probably affecting other shits. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think it was as out of the blue as he thinks it is. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes into this relationship with Shanna. He is now, so Blink-182 has broken up. Um, He is now the father of two. He's gone a lot touring. He comes back and has his daughter and he's obsessed with being there for his kids. He had, he was very sad about how away from his son he was. Mm -hmm. He's kind of happy to have this opportunity to not be touring and be home with his babies. Their relationship is bad. They are deeply jealous of each other. They're fighting horrifically all the time. I think the baby saved them for a bit. He says before her second pregnancy, they were going downhill. Things were not looking good. And then when she was pregnant again, he was, I just fell in love with her all over again. Having my baby in there was a real band-aid on their relationship. This was like the first sort of time I was kind of like not on Travis's side. Yeah. Because he talks about how he was mad at Shanna and he just said all he cared about was the kids and she wasn't as into the family as he was and all she wanted to do was party and be a Hollywood actress. He felt like the show was really breaking them apart because she was acting like a different person on the show and like playing stuff up for the drama. But then that was bleeding into their real lives and he had always stayed the same. I initially was frustrated with him because he would talk about coming home from a tour and she'd be like, let's go out to dinner. And he would be like, okay, let's grab the kids. And she was like, no, I want me time. And I was like, a mother that's home all day with the kids, I think that's fair. He was out doing his thing all day, playing music. Sure, he was making money for the family, but at the end of the day, he had alone adult time where he got to do his thing and she wants alone adult time. But then it came out that it doesn't seem like she was ever with the kids. He would talk about how they had full-time nannies, how even like later when after his plane crash, which we'll get way into and he couldn't move. She would still like sleep till 12 or one and like nannies took the kids to school that all she ever did was party. It doesn't seem like she was home alone with the kids all day suffering much like she wasn't home alone with her own daughter yes. when he met her and she would fight with them and say, you knew who I was when you met me. You knew I was never gonna be a stay at home mom. Like you knew what I wanted, which is also true. Like she did have a daughter when he met her that she never spent time with. So like if he thought all of a sudden she was going to spend time with new kids, like I don't know if that's necessarily um, fair of him to have assumed. But also I also I don't say, think he like picked her as the mother of his dreams. Yeah. It does seem like they got pregnant within four months of knowing each other. True. 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 I also want to say that maybe he didn't agree with her aspirations, but the thing he didn't really like about his first wife, Melissa, is that she didn't have a life outside of him. And then Shanna had too much of a life out. Like she did have these Hollywood dreams and reality show dreams. And she was trying to capitalize off this shit. And he didn't like that. Yeah. He got two extremes. I mean, I, I don't think he should have married either of those people. Like the first one, he just shouldn't have married. The second one, he shouldn't have married. Totally. I'm excited to see. We're going to watch a little bit of Meet the Barkers for the, our Patreon episode and report back. Oh, but I think it's just got, curious. They sounded like the people who just fought and every time it crossed the line. You know when you fight with somebody and you both betray that you actually hate each other? Yes. Whereas like if you fight with somebody you do love, like there are lines that you don't cross. Post plane crash, one of the fights they had, something she said to him is one of the most unforgivable things I've ever heard anyone say okay, to anyone. Okay, so that's what I was going to say. I thought her entire behavior, and we'll get more into it post plane crash but basically just to like sum it up is he's in this horrible plane act crash where people die his best friends die and he is left with like 65% of his body is burnt off and he is in the hospital for three months in the burn victim unit absolutely suicidal like in true unbearable pain (laughs) unbearable pain mentally broken he doesn't know if he'll ever be able to walk or drum again or even if he'll survive it Mm -hmm. she's coming to his side 
And at one point she goes through his emails and finds out about the girls he was fucking when they were off. Like I get that they were on and off and maybe some of it was on, but first of all, he was an unfaithful dude. That's like a messy time. Second of all, even if you guys have been fully married, I do not think that was the time to learn this info. That was not the time to go snooping. And so it's she, just not the time to center yourself in a story. <laughs> I mean, even before this, when yes. he first crashes and they put him in a Georgia hospital, some, one of his friends talks about how the doctors came up to him at the, at the burn victim unit and said, can you tell Shanna she isn't going to be allowed in here anymore if she doesn't get it together? Because this morning she stormed out of her room screaming, throwing her scrubs away. And they go, we had a four-year-old girl die on us this morning. We can't handle this woman's tantrum. Yes. And I was just like, what the fuck is wrong with this bitch that she couldn't act right at a burn victim unit when her husband's almost dead or her ex-husband, the father of her children is almost dead. And then to hear that she took the time of him being like basically in a coma to snoop through his emails. And she had promised him because he was very scared. She had said, I will not leave your side. He goes to sleep and he wakes up and she's gone. And then she went and like fucked her ex. Yeah. I mean, no, she did not handle that situation. Tell, tell what she said after the... And then when he gets so home... So this is when he's home, he's recovering, he's trying to get better, and they're fighting a lot. So he had this assistant, who we haven't mentioned yet, but who was basically his shadow. He had this assistant named Lil Chris, who died in the plane crash, and it was, like, really fucking hard for Travis. But Shanna always felt in competition with Lil Chris for Travis's attention, and at one point when they're fighting post plane crash says that she's basically glad that he died. She doesn't basically, she, she literally says, I'm glad that he's dead. Which is, I do think, one of the worst things I've ever read. I went in ready to give Shanna the benefit of the doubt, ready to say, you don't get to live your dream as a rock star and then come home and say, well, I want family time. I mean, one detail that I went, oh, well, that's like, typical fucking dad behavior as he talks about when the babies were newborns and they'd wake up in the middle of the night he would let them fall asleep on his chest and she was like stop letting the kids in our bed yeah which I get from her perspective and I was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt but I was like I mean it was still a really sweet story but I do understand that I hate when the mom who's like doing the grueling bullshit day in day out becomes the villain because of the bullshit but it does sound like she wasn't there and when I saw how she behaved when he was a burn victim I was like, oh, she is a bad person. I mean, she really prided herself on being dramatic. She really prided herself on physically fighting people at bars, on throwing drinks in girls' faces. When they were on earlier in their relationship and they'd be out at clubs together and there would be girls that would even just sit next to him and start talking to him, she would like come up and just chuck a drink in these girls' faces and be mad at Travis for disrespecting her by like publicly addressing another female. And it's just like, I do think you're overreacting. And he does have one kind of funny anecdote, which like, again, we wanted to support Shanna, but she makes it really hard. He has this one anecdote about a girl that he hooked up with when he and Shanna were off, which she was sitting next to him at a club and they had not been speaking. It was just like where they were seated. She was talking to other people. He was talking to other people. They just happened to be next to each other. Shanna came up and chucked a drink in this girl's face because she thought that the girl was hitting on Travis. And because of that incident, Travis and that girl got to talking and later hooked up. (laughs) Yeah, because Travis had to go to apologize. I mean, he talks about Shannon would take him to like Playboy Mansion parties and then go off and dance. And then if someone started talking to him while she was dancing, she would like scream and freak out. Even the story about him being on punk. Yeah. He talks about coming back from tour. He was on the train from Australia. He was exhausted. All he wanted to do was go get, it was his birthday. And all he wanted to go do was get dinner with his wife. And she was like, talking about this new restaurant they were going to go to. And he, she was all excited. And he was like, I didn't know why we weren't just going to my favorite restaurant, but whatever. It's I, so funny how obsessed he was with that restaurant. He I talks know. about this one restaurant a hundred times. But so then he's there and they get there and the waiter is like hitting on Shannon. And it turns out it's somebody she used to date. And he keeps calling uh, Travis, the guy with the mohawk. 
and being really rude. And so finally, I mean, I will say he's like perked out. He's like deep on Xanax. He freaks out and like bangs the table or something. And then Ashton Kutcher runs out and is like, you've been punked. And he's like, he was so fucked up. It took him a minute to even figure it out. And then he was like, oh, ha ha. And then they all went to a bar and partied. But I was even like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the point of this story even was. Maybe besides just being like, I was in punked because that was such a, a hot show of the moment that he feels it's relevant but it was a weird story of being like, I do feel like Shanna prioritized her being on TV over him wanting to see his family, him celebrating his birthday. Yeah. I would be mad if somebody turned my birthday into a prank, especially if I had been gone for weeks. Well, you hate pranks. Yeah. Before we wrap up this half of the podcast, because we are at a good stopping point here, let's talk about one thing that you and I both thought independently because we didn't see each other this weekend. We had two independent thoughts that merged as one. We spent too much time together. We are no longer two podcasters. We are uno podcaster. One worm, two heads. (laughs) That is how they are though. I think they can move in either direction. Is that true? They can go front or back. What? Eyes on their butt. Are we like cat dog? (laughs) Yeah, but we're like worm, worm. It's a worm on both sides. But one's a brunette and one's less of a a lighter brunette. (laughs) One has googly eyes. That would be a funny pet, a worm with one googly eye on each end. Like a cyclops. But it still has two eyes. It has a long head. Like a wide head. (laughs) Like a hammerhead worm. (laughs) Are we a hammerhead worm? No brain. Two butts. No butts. (laughs) Wait. Four hearts. Anyway, we wanted to talk about how Travis Barker reminded us of Steve-O in a way where he is, dare I say, the opposite side of Steve-O's coin. When you look at it on paper, okay, if you're looking at their driver's license, they are both highly tattooed, bald vegans who lost their mothers young in a traumatic way who love to bone. Love it. Love to bone. They both have an absolute driving force passion. They have a deep Red Bull fueled energy. Like they are hyper energetic, had been since childhood. Mm -hmm. I think they did make their dreams come true. Totally. It's just the difference. The reason that we at our core want to marry Travis and if we were to fuck, Mary kill, I think we would fuck, Mary Travis. <laughs> I know that there are Steve-O stands out there, but I think he is like at his core, a bad person. And I think that that is the driving force is that like at every turn, Travis has a mantra, a lesson, a thing he learned, tips for the kids, advice, like the people around him. He wanted to bring everyone with him to the top. And I believe Steve-O would have pushed someone off a bridge to be on television. Travis talks about signing a motocross biker. And he's with his famous family. And he talks mm-hmm. about how they could have done this for a lot of athletes, but they didn't want just the best athletes. They didn't just want the most famous, popular athletes. They only wanted to sign people who fit in with the family because every two or three weeks, he would have like a pool party at his house and they got They have to be able to hang at the barbecue. And then I was contrasting that with the fact that even the guys in Jackass hated Steve-O. Yes. And I was thinking about how Travis... I mean, we talked about the difference between Steve-O and Travis... First of all, the similarity, I think, between Steve-O and Travis, if you see them as children, is that in retrospect, they were not productive members of society in what an adult or society would say was productive. They were not people you looked at and you were like, oh, they're sure to make it big as lawyers. But they were productive people for their own agenda. They were children who woke up every morning and went out and made something happen. Steve-O had all those crazy stories about like loving bands and like calling every number in the phone book until he found their manager and getting to go meet them. Travis was skating all day, drumming all day, 
following his passions. And even though graffitiing and making stickers and all this stuff might not be seen as like good resume builders, he wasn't idle. Both people were deeply energetic and like waking up and fulfilling their own agenda and working hard at the things that at their own passions. Yes. Here's where it seems to divide. Steve-O's passion was attention and fame. Yes. Travis's passion was a skill set of drumming. Yes. He respected an artistry and he built it. And he, I also think a big difference was I don't think Steve-O has empathy. Yeah. I think also, and I feel like I'm going to get slammed for saying this, Travis is a father and that does seem to have brought him the most enlightenment he talks about first being better in front of his kids and then being better even away from his kids because he gets this line that really like broke my heart. He goes, who the man I am today will impact the, who they will become. And I think that he's really mellowed out and he tries to let things go and he tries to like not be so angry and not be a hothead. So there's this one point where he talks about um, when the paparazzi were really stressing him out. He like moved out to Calabasas when his kids were quite young to try and get away from it all. And then a lot of celebrities started moving out to Calabasas and he felt very attacked. I mean, he did not let shit go. He had a lot of friends from his early days that were extremely willing to throw down. He wasn't just surrounded by pretty boys. They had weapons. And he talks about this one confrontation with a paparazzi where he was like truly ready to fuck someone up. And then he had a nanny come pick up his kids so that he could have a confrontation in the parking lot. But Alabama, his daughter, saw it happening. And then the fear from her became not the paparazzi, but what Travis was going to do to the paparazzi. And like seeing that, he like stopped letting that shit bother him. Yeah. And I really do think that even when he talks about his kind of exploits, there is a a remorse. There is like a gratefulness that he's grown. There is just like a much more traditional. I do feel like he was a dickhead, but no more of a dickhead than anybody else I would have known. I do feel like what Steve-O was doing always seemed next level sociopathic. It seemed like what he was doing was to like, was with like a lack of respect for humanity Mm -hmm. (laughs) or not for humanity, but for the humans around him. Like he did not respect anybody. He even talks about, I mean, uh, Travis has a story about when he was little, he hated piano because he was embarrassed because he thought it was like a girl instrument. Yeah. And so when his mom would be like, Travis, uh, piano time, he'd be like, oh, she's talking to my sisters. But when his sisters would come out and be like, Travis, piano time, he would be so embarrassed. He would like scream at them. And he's like, I always felt bad. It wasn't their fault. I hated piano. And I do feel like that's like a normal thing to have as an adult to be like, ah, I was completely acting out because I was like insecure and I feel bad I treated my sister that way. He also fully reflects back on it and is like, I really fucking wish I knew more piano. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile... I mean, I don't think Steve-O had that kind of reflection. Steve-O didn't have that kind of empathy. I, I think, I don't know. I just like really did like Travis. I feel like he was somebody who worked really hard towards the passion. And he worked really hard at everything he does. And it led to him having really exciting and great opportunities. And I think that he just had a mellowness and like a trust the talent situation where, I mean, he spent years and years honing this skill And then he was like, let me just show them what I can do, which I find very inspiring because there is this need sometimes to be like, I need to show everyone how good I am and that I'm better than they think that I am. And I have to prove everybody wrong. And he never had that. Whereas Steve O had like a very intense, let me follow you around until you let me be a part of your club. I mean, to the end, I think one of the things that made it hard for me to gauge how successful Travis was at any given moment was because until the end, he seemed so shocked and humbled by every opportunity. Like he, he was like, I can't believe I got to play the Grammys. And I'm like, I do feel like you were one of the formative band members of the band of 
the 2000s. I mean, every time anyone would ask him to do anything, like, because he started getting these really incredible opportunities um, to play with rappers when they would play live shows with bands or when they would record. And he just, like, could not believe that he was the go-to guy for it. And it was like, I don't know, man. It seems like you spent the last 30-plus years practicing for hours and hours a day every single day, and it's paying off. All right, you guys. We are going to get to the second half of the Travis Barker story. There's more tragedy. There is so much stuff. And there's more celeb fun little bits. You guys, the roller coaster, I'm going to hit you with a couple words. Absolute devastation. Paris Hilton. Um, I don't, just like a lot. Lessons. Lessons. <laughs> Anyway, we have an incredible guest with us next week. We have pop culture expert Lex Nico. Um, and you guys, we cannot wait to see you back next week. Of course, please keep reviewing. Please subscribe to the Patreon for bonus content. We will be watching Meet the Barkers. And we love you. We literally love you so much. Bye.